young people nowadays, everyone tries to protect them. There's helicopter parents saying, I don't want my child to fail. I want to hand them this, hand them that. I think they're doing a tremendous disservice because I think you almost need to fail to learn the lessons so that they stick with you so you can remember and it resonates with you soundly that you're not going to do that again and this is the way you're going to pivot. You need those life experiences to really grow. And if you don't have them, you're not growing, you're not growing as a leader and you're not growing in your profession. Welcome. You are listening to the Hero of the Hour podcast, the show dedicated to empowering you to take financial freedom into your own hands. Through expert interviews with decades of experience, this show will give you not only the tactical strategies of what's working in business, but the appropriate mindsets to master your financial future and build generational wealth. Heroes and entrepreneurs operate with a similar anything is possible mentality, and that is exactly what our show is about. Your host is none other than Mark B. Murphy, CEO of Northeast Private Client Group and best-selling author of three books, all dedicated to helping others plan for generational wealth. He and his team are on a mission to share their knowledge and techniques so that others can enjoy a life of financial security and freedom. Get ready to be inspired to create the life of your dreams. Let's go. In today's episode of the Hair of the Hour podcast, Mark chats with the great Sharon Mon, Managing Director and Head of Law Firm Strategy at ZRG Partners. Stay tuned to learn about how Sharon got started in legal recruiting and her insight into how women still have a long way to go in the legal field. Thank you so much for joining and enjoy today's episode. Well, I'm Mark Murphy, founder and CEO of Northeast Private Client Group, and I'm here with a very good friend of mine, Sharon Mon. You know, I, what I call this uh, podcast, the Hero of the Hour podcast, because I like to have people on that are either heroes to me or heroes to other people. And just before I kind of get into it, I just want to know who are some of, who are some of your heroes or, what, or how do you define a hero? <laughs> Well, Mark, you're one of my heroes because you're very humble and congratulations on your latest book. We've known each other for many years. Uh, personally, you're just a dynamo and you're so generous and give back, but professionally, you've done so well. So I'm very uh, happy to be on the podcast today and have a chance to speak with you. Uh, my heroes, I you know, obviously look to my parents. Those are always where I start with family. That's the foundation for everything else. But there are just so many people who are doing so many good things and many of them go unrecognized. But I think that a hero is just somebody who really does good and really helps. And it doesn't have to be recognized. Some people do it behind the scenes. And those are the unsung heroes. And I applaud them as well. You know, I I, I wasn't going to go in this direction. And if you don't want to go there, we won't. But, you know, I've met your dad a couple of times. And I, I know what a, you know, how close you are to him. Yes. But, but I also know just from conversations and social media and other things, you lost your mom at a pretty young age. I did. I did. My parents were happily married for 41 years. My dad is just a wonderful guy, as was my mom. She passed away from a leukemia 13 years ago. So my, my dad thinks very highly of you too, Mark. He likes oh, you as well. Is that, well, well <laughs> I, I think that that's all there. But one of the things that, that I think you've proven is that if you're smart and are willing not to get outworked, you can do anything in America. And I, I think you've done that. There's a number of businesses that you've been involved in successfully. But you know, one that that is I, I think has been the foundation has been You've been probably the top legal recruiter in the country for for many many years. I'd love people to just know kind of how you get started, you know, kind of where you are right now, and, and tell us a little bit about 
of latte because not, not a lot of people, not everybody knows uh, what that is. <laughs> well, it's interesting how I got my start in legal recruiting. I always joke that by background, I'm what is known as a recovering lawyer. I went to law school. I practiced for several years. I got my feet wet in the, in the legal field. As much as I enjoyed it, I felt that my strength was predominantly more of business development. And the aspect of my legal practice that I enjoyed the most was helping people. So I was trying to figure out a way at a young age where I can combine my love of law as well as helping others. And it just came about as many of us happen to fall into sometimes fields that we enjoy. Mine just happened to be a stroke of luck. I had a call from a headhunter that asked me if I would be interested in interviewing for other jobs. And this was at a very young age in my 20s. I was a trial lawyer at a great firm. I loved the people with whom I worked. I actually also, you know, liked the law firm practice, but wasn't crazy about it. So, you know, the advice I always give to others is that when you receive a call or have an opportunity to interview with others, take the call because you never know where it might lead. And it could be a great networking opportunity, regardless of what pans out. So I ended up taking um, an interview with a law firm. And what I learned, Mark, was that I enjoyed working you know, I enjoyed the people with whom I worked with at the law firm, but I didn't love the practice of law. So the recruiter asked if I would join her in her business. And that's how it all got started in the, my legal recruiting career. Tell a little bit, uh, virtually, is this any law firm in the country that's looking to acquire tap talent? Are they people that should know you? Is it? I know you work with some of the most, biggest, most international firms in the world. How far down the food chain do you, do you go? So a lot of times I, my, my main focus would be on the global 100 law firms, but I also work with the global 200 and 300 law firms as well. It seems that there has been a lot of, not just in the legal industry, but in the banking industry and other industries as well, a lot of consolidation. So sometimes I'll work with smaller firms that look to be acquired or merge with another firm to help their business. You know, the, the challenge has been, I guess, the last probably decade has been the challenge to acquire talent, meaning meaning that, you know, for, for those firms. Technology and other things have disrupted the business. How is it different than it is now than when you started, you know, a couple of decades ago? Oh my gosh, Mark, that's a great question because the law firm recruiting field has changed so much. And a lot of it has to do with technology. And the issue seems to be that a lot of small firms might be wonderful and prominent. And many of these smaller firms have been around for hundreds of years, literally. But it's just so hard to keep up with the technology and keep pace with what's going on in the legal technology world. And unfortunately, it seems that the bigger firms um, that are just so much more profitable and larger seem to have an economic advantage you know, to invest in technology, marketing, and all the, all the necessities that firms need to make themselves known. Uh, a lot of smaller firms don't have that advantage. And so that's where I come in and try to help these smaller firms maybe merge, be acquired, and that seems to be the direction and the trend that the legal or the legal uh, you know world is taking right now. You know, I, I see the same thing in our field. I see the same thing in every field is that regulation almost always and technology seem to be just squeezing out the, the little guy. That's right. You're not, you're, not yeah. you're seeing that in, in virtually in virtually every field. Like it's either get big or get bought. Yeah. Uh, I think that's in, in every in every place. But you've been through a number of recessions before. Yes. If, if it's likely that we're going to a recession, I guess nothing for sure. I mean, I think you could you can ask five people what they think is going on in the economy and get like 13 opinions on what's yeah. happening, what's happening in the economy. Yeah. But talk to me about how does that affect legal recruiting in terms of a recession? Yeah. So 
I, I feel like I always joke around them. I'm the old lady in the business at this point. I've been doing this for decades. So I've been able to see a lot of the market ups and downs through the years. And what I find interesting is that uh, when I started in the field, it was around 2000, 2000, 1999. And back then, as you know, we went through the whole dot-com bust. So that was a big deal. And everyone was worried about, oh, no, where's the economy going? The dot-com bust. Uh, so, you know, after periods of growth, and then we hit the, the bust probably around 2007. And then, of course, we all know about the recession back uh, in 2008, where everyone thought that was the end of the world, what's going to happen. And the, you know, even the country's ratings went down and nobody had confidence in the market. So that directly affected the law firms and their clients that they facilitate. So that was another downward spiral. And of course, it picks up again. And now who knows what we're facing at this point uh, going forward, recession or not, it seems that there's a little bit of apprehension about what's happening in the market. And that's a direct correlation between what goes on with the market as well as with law firms. Uh, but it's my opinion that um, after surviving the ups and downs of the market, it really is cyclical market. It comes, it goes up, it goes down. And it's just a matter of weathering those uh, cycles that we go through in the legal recruiting world. You know, I, I'm seeing a lot of people over the last three or four years that have moved for more money and better opportunity to other firms. The question I wonder, the question I wonder for them is if they're the last ones in the door and they're at an elevated salary, if business slows down a little bit, will they be the first ones laid off? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. I think a lot of times uh, it depends on where your practice area is. If you are a corporate M&A lawyer and you happen to join a law firm and let's say your business is tremendous, you're doing well, you're building well, revenue is strong, because in an up market, that's where your business goes. If you're a corporate lawyer in an up market, you're doing deals, everything is going well, then your business should be strong. Uh, but if something should happen where there might be a recession, the revenue slows down, that's when corporate lawyers go into trouble. And then what picks up is the market for restructuring lawyers and litigators. Uh, so I think it's more of a of a it becomes more problematic when your business goes down, even if you're last in the door. If you have a strong business, you are recession proof. You'll do well. But if your business is heavily dependent on market factors, no matter when you join a firm, uh, that will be an influence as to whether or not, you know, you're going, your, your compensation will go down at the firm or you might be let go. You know, I, I think you're very young because you're younger than me. So anybody that's younger <laughs> than me is very, very young, which I've been doing this a long time. I think, and again, maybe I just see it from our kids, my kids, where I just kind of see a lot of prejudices being left on the side. A lot of doors that were closed to people 20 and 30 years ago are open. Yes. But as a woman entrepreneur, that's had to both work for you and against you, right? Being a woman? Yes. Yes. Interesting question. <laughs> So when that came, was there was there a, was that it was pretty male dominated when you first got into the business? Oh, absolutely. I think that with the recent changes uh, going even to you know most recently the hashtag Me Too movement uh, that came about probably around 2016, I think that has been a tremendous help. But I do think that women entrepreneurs we still have a long way to go. I think that as much as there's a lot of rhetoric out there about let's support women and bring more women into law firms, you know the statistics show with women. When you graduate from law school, it's equally 50%. I think it might be even a little bit more favorable to women with the percentages. I think the current statistics show that 55% of women and 45% of men graduate from law school. But fast forward 20 years from that point, why is it that the market is now, it's 84% of men are partners in law firms and only 16% men. So as much as all these law firms want women to join and they're calling for diversity, 
where's the pool of women in diverse candidates? 16% is very low. So I don't think that from that standpoint, we've really improved much. I think that coming out of law school, there's a lot of effort to recruit minorities and women. But then at some point later in the years, there's a disconnect somewhere where, where women are not getting the business. They're not really getting the clients. And I think that's where the issue becomes more prominent. So as a woman advances in her career, she becomes less attractive to the law firms that really want partners that have those big books of business. And I think those later years are really what counts and what helps women progress through the years. And, and, and I don't see that being any different than it was even 30 years ago. Well, that's uh, that's disturbing. I would I would have thought, you know, I think in so many industries, like I see in medicine, I see in dentistry, that when I first started 37 years ago, you talk to doctors and dentists were were men. I, I have a couple of uh, female MDs that are in their late 70s and 80s. And I, I see pictures on their in their office where they were the only woman in their medical school class. Yes. And yeah. and but I, but I see in medicine and dentistry, I think it's become a female dominated environment. But, yes. I, but, but that hasn't happened in the law yet. But it may. Yeah, I mean, there's some good things that are coming about. Some I'm hopeful, and I feel very positive. And I do think that the women before us, uh, the professionals from the '70s that were protesting and getting rights out there, I mean, they were very brave. They've really paved the way for a lot of us now. Uh, but I think with each generation that comes about, I think more and more developments are made. We have a long way to go, but we've come a long way as well. I also noticed one of the things right, you're talking about: how much passion, how much energy that you have, <laughs> and you're and you're out what I'll call networking, marketing, just being out and be seen. <laughs> I, I think a lot of people want to figure out how to go build their business. What have you done with intentionality to be able to go get to this place? Like, like it, it, it didn't happen because you, you know, you, you, you sleep until noon and then you, you know, you, 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 you know, you, uh, you're done by four o'clock. It seems like you've got from the minute you wake up to the minute you go to bed, you're out working, networking, marketing. Tell people about that journey because it's kind of similar to my own in the sense that, you know, you've got to, you can't get outworked and you never seem to get outworked. Well, Mark, I think we're very similar in this respect. I think that, you know, you're, you're very generous. I can speak firsthand as, as a friend of mine that you give back to so many charities. You're so generous, philanthropic behind the scenes. And I think you do it, you do it with, so, you're so genuine. And I think that really is the key. I mean, a lot of times it's really, it sounds cliche, but it's just giving back and the people with whom you affiliate. And through the years, I mean, doing this for decades, you just come into contact with so many people. And when you give back and you're charitable and you hang out with other successful and charitable people, I think that builds your network. They want to help you. I think it grows organically that way. There is an intentionality about going to bring people to dinner and drinks and meeting with people. And in spite of the pandemic, more than ever with the pandemic, I think it's so important to get in front of people in person. There's only so much that you can do with a Zoom call. Like you and I have known each other for years. Like I love catching up. I'll take you anytime that I can get you, Mark, on Zoom call or otherwise. <laughs> but I think the best way to get to know people is truly in person. You can learn a lot of their nuances that you just don't get from a Zoom call. I worry about future generations that everyone does, you know, just calls only through Zoom or through me. And you don't really get a sense of the person when you don't spend personal time with them. And I think that it's really important to get out there and just meet people, get to know them. And I think business comes from that naturally. When people know you and trust you and you develop that warm relationship and that foundation, I think that's critical to any business relationship, regardless of what field you're in. You know, I used to fly to California. So from so from New York, from New Jersey. You'd fly out to California, you'd fly, I'd have maybe a meeting or two, a couple of meetings out there, a couple of big meetings, and then I'd fly back. It would take me, let's call it two full days to have two meetings. 
those are the days, right? <laughs> and, and you know, and now, I mean, Zoom talking about being a communication device, it's a transportation device, meaning it now takes me two hours instead of 48 hours to have those two meetings, That's which right. I think is wonderful. Yes. But I think at the same time is whether it's that all the magic happens not in the meeting. It's the meeting after the meeting. It's the it's the discussion that you have over a cocktail. It's when you go to a conference, it's not always, it's it's almost never the content from the main platform or main stage that is the difference maker in your business. It's that sidebar conversation you have, you know, where you're getting coffee between the two sessions and somebody says, hey, that speaker, you know, in our in our organization, we do this, we do that, or we do the other thing. You know, that's exactly what we've been missing or exactly what we should be doing as well, or that kind of stuff. And I don't think, right. I don't think you do that at zoom. And I, you know, I do, I do worry that people are anti, I mean, as I said, I, I mean, I think like I see my kids, they play video games, but never in the same room. Everybody's in their own bedroom playing video games. There's no socialization. That's right. Which also leads to like a lot of discourse because there's very, you can't be rude to people face to face. You could be rude to me over a zoom call. But, I mean, what people say to each other in emails and texts and on social media is just downright embarrassing. I mean, it's I totally got yeah. it. Yes. I mean, everyone's a keyboard warrior. They're always pressing the send button, not really thinking what they're putting out there. And that stays out there forever. Like if you just have a bad day or you're angry or you have a drink too many and you happen to be on your keyboard or your phone and you send that send button and it goes out there to the universe, that's not coming back anytime soon. You can delete it, but you could still, you know, as I know as a lawyer by background, you still have access to that. So you have to be very careful. And I also think that it doesn't help foster any civil discussion. Everybody just has their opinion. They're pressing the button. And when you're face to face, you're right, Mark, you have more of a of a camaraderie. You have more of a basis. Um, you know, you, you have more of a connection. And I think that's what's missing when you just have these type of conversations over Zoom. You, you know, one, one of the things I also think is that you, know, you talk about efficiency and other things. It's you know also working with a lot of young advisors in our organization. I think everybody knows what needs to be done, but not everybody's willing to pay the price to get it done. That's right. You know, meaning, meaning, meaning I, there, there's just a level where just people, there's only so far they want to go. In their mind, they'd love to get there, right? but they're just not willing to do the work to, to become as successful as somebody like you has become. I mean, there's a lot of people out there that do what you do. There's a lot of people out there that do what we do, but, but they're not, not willing to put the, put the effort in. Yeah, and I think it's it's also a generational difference. I see that a lot of young people that I counsel, if I have clients that have their kids or friends that are young and looking to get their first job or second job, a lot of times, you know, they'll they just assume that everybody from Instagram or TikTok becomes a billionaire by 30. And that's just the way it's done. If they get enough likes on their Instagram account or TikTok account, if only you know, I, I would like a job like that myself. But unfortunately, in the real world, in the brick and mortar world, it doesn't work that way. And I think young people also miss out a lot. I sound so old when I say this. Young people miss out a lot. But point taken is that kids today today, today. Um, but I feel that a lot of times if you're if you're sitting in your parents basement somewhere in you know Allentown Pennsylvania and you're not coming to work and you're not there physically you're missing out on potential mentorship potential contacts that you would never get just by not being present And, and to your point from before Mark where you're talking about at work, if you want to go out for a drink with your boss, you're not doing that if you're sitting in your parents' basement. You know, I use that as a proverbial joke because that's what everybody always uh, kids about. But seriously, if you're not coming into New York, you're not sitting physically in a building, you're missing out on so much opportunity. I, I just remember when I was a kid and I was practicing, you know, one of my law firm partners would come to me and say, Sharon, I have extra, e- I have extra tickets to the Eagles concert. Do you want to go to Madison Square Garden for the moment? 
Yes. Sharon, do you want to see Bruce Springsteen? Sharon, uh, I can't attend this cocktail hour. I can't attend this charity event. I can't attend this or that. I would be given free tickets all the time to network, meet with people, even with my colleagues, spur of the moment. You want to just grab a drink after work. That was so New York City. That was wonderful. That's something I looked forward to. And these are lifelong contacts and friends that I have forever. And even if I don't see these people for a number of years, we built up the foundation when we were kids, when we had right, those right. connections. Um, and I think that's critical to business development. That's essential nowadays. You can't just develop that type of rapport on a Zoom call. Have you noticed that life is getting more and more expensive? From grocery prices to real estate values, everywhere you turn, prices seem to be skyrocketing. Well, Mark has dedicated decades of his career and life to serving entrepreneurs and professionals to build real wealth. And in most cases, multi-generational wealth. The reality is, we all have to navigate turbulent times in this economy. But the difference will be for those that have a roadmap and a customized plan for building wealth. That's why, as a listener to this podcast, we are so excited to share with you first access to Mark's newest book, The Ultimate Investment, a roadmap to grow your business and build multi-generational wealth. When you access this book, you'll discover how to know when you're working a job instead of a business. That hard work isn't all about hours put in. This will make you more productive. Why you need to live with your back against a wall. How to surround yourself with the right people who support your vision. And so much more. Go to www.markbmurphy.com forward slash book to get access now. Once again, go to www.markbmurphy.com forward slash book. And now, back to the show. Can I ask you this? Like, I remember in, in like the late 90s when the dot-com boom, you know, boom was happening, you'd see law firms, accounting firms. Like, I wore a suit and tie when I was in my 20s and 30s. Not a sport jacket, a suit and tie every day because I wanted to, you know, wanted to be a grown-up, you know, be a businessman. <laughs> and um, and the idea, so I wore that probably for the first 20 years I was there. But you'd saw those firms to compete with the dot-coms and the hedge funds and stuff. You'd see people start showing up, you know, in flip flops and sandals and that kind of stuff. And then, and then the recession happened, and all of a sudden that kind of slowed down. Right. Do you think this this work from home people are going to get more back to the office, or do you think that that's over? I think with the recession, I think that the law firm uh, and businesses, the power is going to shift. It's going to shift from employees having all the power with the quiet quitting or whatever the latest buzzword was that they were just you know, thinking that they had all of the, you know, it, it was on, it, everything was on their side. If they wanted to quit, they could just jump to another job and in five seconds they would be hired. I don't think that's going to happen in a recession. And I think people are going to have a very rude awakening. Suddenly, you know, the, the companies will have the power to say, look, we want you back in work. If you don't want to come back to work, you won't have a job. And there's no government stimulus, PPP money supporting you. Good luck. You're going to have to find the job the hard way. I think people especially young people have not lived through a downturn in the market and they're going to suddenly realize that they don't have the ability that they had before to just simply jump jobs. It's not going to happen. It's going to be tough. Yeah. I think the the pendulum always swings like what goes on right. forever doesn't go on forever. And I think those folks are in for a rude awakening. It's like people who have those, you know, young people who put money in the stock market when there's like sort of a boom, like a, a bull run and they think, yeah. Oh, all you do, you just throw money in there. It goes up every time. You just become it rich. Never goes, it never goes, real estate never goes down. The stock market never goes, never goes and down. And they wake up and they go, oh my God, what just happened here? And I think I think people are, uh, 
people are, are you're going to be you know, a rude awakening. One of the things you work with a lot of top executives. What are tell me tell me some of the key traits you identify in in top executive or look for in top executives when you're recruiting? Tenacity. A lot of them don't give up. I think that the one, uh, the the very the strongest I guess trait that I see is that they just don't give up. I mean, everyone has failure, and everyone thinks, oh, failure. You know, it, it's the end of your career. It's not until you're dead. It's never the end. Like you can always rise up. It's not how you fall. It's how you get up when you fall. And I think a lot of times it sounds, again, it sounds like a cliche, but it's cliche for a reason. How many people have taken so many hits throughout their life and they just keep going and they keep going and they get up and they keep trying and they seem like an overnight success. You know, they're a 50 year old overnight success, right? But they've had so many trials and tribulations that they've learned from. And the key is to learn from that and keep going. And, you know, young people nowadays, everyone tries to protect them. There's helicopter parents saying, I don't want my child to fail. I want to hand them this, hand them that. I think they're doing a tremendous disservice because I think you almost need to fail to learn the lessons so that they stick with you. So you can remember, and it resonates with you soundly that you're not going to do that again. And this is the way you're going to pivot. You need those life experiences to really grow. And if you don't have them, you're not growing, you're not growing as a leader and you're not growing in your profession. Everyone that I've known, every top person that I've known, whether they admit it or not, whether it makes the front page of headlines or not, behind the scenes or publicly, they have all failed, every single one of them. No one's escaped through life uh, unscathed. Yeah, we had a conversation one time a little bit about how the role of these leaders and top executives have sort of evolved over time. Yes. Tell me a little bit about how you, uh, how do you see that evolution? I think leaders nowadays have to be a little bit more hands-on, a little bit more compassionate. From a public arena I think leaders are now learning to navigate through social media. Everything now is in real time. They are learning that the internet is a powerful force. You can craft your image through the internet. And I think that the leaders have to be really cognizant of what they say or what they do goes out viral. Uh, I think that's a new phenomenon that a lot of leaders weren't aware of before, but they're learning to navigate through that. They're also learning to navigate with young people. Young people are more outspoken. I think that's good, but I think that they're trying to learn how to really bring up this next generation and make succession plans for their businesses based on what they're dealing with with their employees, everyone from the new new employees all the way through the seasoned ones, a lot of generations they deal with. And especially as people work longer, they have to learn to navigate that as well with their current employees. How do they find roles for them? What do they need to do? Leaders have to grapple with a lot of issues that they maybe didn't have to do so in the past. I agree. It's a, it's a challenge every day and the landscape is changing. Negotiations are sort of a lost art. Tell, tell me how you tell me how you coach people and how do you navigate win-win? I always joke as a lawyer that if both sides are unhappy, then you have a successful negotiation. <laughs> but seriously, I think that you have to take a lot of factors into consideration. I think that people have to be a little bit open-minded. There's a lot going on in the world generally, and uh, a lot of factors have to be taken into consideration. Um, the one thing with negotiation is that there's a lot of give and take. I think that you have to think about what do you want long-term, what do you want short-term? I think my my focus is usually long-term, what benefits my clients in the long-term mostly. Um, I think short-term gain is great, but I think that, you know, especially if you have a long career ahead of you, negotiating for the long-term is always, uh, you know, something that you should consider. You also are, you know, we talk about the future leadership. I'd love to hear your predictions and give you some insights on what's, uh, you know, kind of following up on that, what the evolving role of executives will be in today's landscape, business landscape. I think that executives will probably have to be more sensitive, Mark, to what's going on with the market. They will definitely have to be more clued in more than ever with minorities and diversity candidates. 
Um, the evolution in companies that I see is that there's more focus on chief diversity officers, chief culture officers. This is all new and this is, has, has all evolved in the C-suite in just the past few years. So in addition to juggling top talent, you're going to have to make a more pronounced and decisive effort to bring on minorities and women. And that's not just being mandated in the companies, that's being mandated with their clients, that's being mandated on boards. In some states like California, it's mandated that there have to be a certain amount of women on boards. So companies really need to scramble and really figure out a way to bring up this type of spotlight to their firms and really focus on it more than ever. It's, uh, you know, the, the you know, we're, as, as we're talking, you know, there's a couple of banks that have gone under in the last week or so, and there may be more to follow. It seemed to me that though, that a lot of the things that brought them down were their woke policies. <laughs> <laughs> So how, so how do you balance something that's good, which is being inclusive to give everybody an opportunity to succeed without undermining your enterprise? Yeah, it seems like that's like a hot button uh, question and issue. But I think that I think it's, you know, there's no simple answer to that. But in my opinion, I feel that if they just train and give more focus on women and minorities, give them a, give them a platform, help them. You know, a lot of times when people go into companies, I see on the headhunting side that they're lost. Like, think about it. Like, we have friends that are chairman of top firms, and our friend, one in particular, has done extremely well in integrating people that have joined the firm. But let's face it, when you have a, a law firm where there's 4,000 lawyers, or you have these companies with 50,000, 100,000 employees, how do you really integrate uh, candidates that come to your firm into the mainstream and into the fold so that you give them a fighting chance to succeed in your company. I think that's what's missing. You could hire someone. Great. You hire them. Great. You check off the diversity box. Good for you. But at the same time, then they're hanging out in the wind. They have no idea how to integrate into the company. No one's really integrating them. It's up to the company to do this. Someone coming in from the outside doesn't know your organizational structure as well as you do. Give these people a fighting chance. And it only helps the companies when you help people within your organizations because you don't want people to leave. If they leave, there could be lawsuits. There could They could join a competitor. They're bringing proprietary information somewhere else. You know, just do, do what's, you know, basically just help the people that join your company. And I think that's lost on so many chairmen and CEOs from within a company. It seems simple and basic, but many companies don't take the time to do that. Yeah, I uh, I actually think uh, that the hiring process and what you do is so critical because you know the the, the one thing you you know it takes a long time. Like when you go to business school, they don't teach you how to hire people. They don't tell you how to build culture. They don't tell you how to do all those things you need to do as a leader. You know, first of all, if you think you have all the answers, you you know you should have your head examined because you know you're constantly learning and you're you know you're you're always behind. You always feel like you're behind the eight ball. But the one thing that becomes clear when things have not worked. It's come at the the initial hiring, yes. in that you'll find that when you kind of look back and go, why did this not work? Right. It didn't work because they didn't get what we were doing. They didn't really want to be there. It was just because you know we were they didn't have another job or they were ten minutes from their office or, and, and quite frankly, maybe with proper training they might not have had the capability to do the job that we wanted them to do. That's true. But I think even more importantly, they did not have our cult our culture. Right. Right. You know, you mean that? You mean that, that? I think that you know, you could talk about small organizations of five or ten or fifty or a hundred people, and you know, it's it's very personality driven or people driven. When you have an organization that's ten thousand or fifty thousand or a hundred thousand, it's different. But I do think that what the leaders need to do and what the organization does, they all have culture. That's right. And and I think that you'll see people that are the wrong fits for that culture. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think, Mark, to your point, it's more critical nowadays. I mean, during the entire pandemic, 
all of my client, all of my candidates were hired through Zoom calls. So how do you really, you don't meet with people in person. So more than ever, culture is important and you have to find mentors within the company. You really have to help people and you really have to do a better job up front. I think you just can't rely on Zoom calls and a few interviews to really get your candidates. You have to dig deeper and find out not only do, you know, does their business fit the company or do, do their credentials fit, but also how do they appear from a cultural standpoint? Um, I see a lot of companies doing a lot of assessment tests and I think that's very smart. So they're not only testing, you know, their ability to bring in business or whatever qualifications they need to do, do the job, but they're also testing their emotional intelligence. And I think that gets discounted sometimes. See, people say, eh, you know, emotional intelligence, who cares? You know, an employee is an employee, but you're not just filling a seat more than ever, you know, especially with people working remotely, you really need to focus on the culture of your company because more than ever, it's becoming dissipated by the fact that people just aren't working together anymore. There's no collaboration. There is no culture with companies, especially if they're all working remote. Where is your culture? Yeah, I actually am a big believer. I actually think the one issue that it's hard to to see, it's like people talk about IQ and obviously there's a lot of smart people out there and EQ, the emotional quotient. They talk a lot about social quotient where, you know, how do, how do people interact with people? Do people like you? Do you, you're out there and go do that? I think the one that's the, the stealthy one is the AQ, adversity quotient, meaning when everything's going great, everybody's fine. But when yeah. some adversity hits, it is amazing how you'll see people that you think are rational, smart wonderful people who just lose it, you know, or just, or just or lose all rationality. And you're going, oh, oh, oh my God, you know, my God, like there's, you know, that, you know, so, you know, part of it, like I think in, in, you know, at least in, in our business is when you're dealing with, with, you know, or, or deal with people's money, everything in life, in every business does not go perfectly every day. Things happen most of the times out of your control. And so you get people that are very emotional. And so, yes. Part of that issue is to be able to be empathetic and and when that adversity occurs, to be able to take that and flip that script and take it from a problem to an opportunity going forward. And and there's so many people. I I'm I'm looking at myself and I go, wow, that is crazy. It's almost like I, you know, I love sports so much. I go, it's like you see some teams that have all these all-star players, but they can't play together because it's not a good team. It's a great, it's a great collection of talent, but not a great team. That's right. That's right. You're right. And I think and I think that's the hard part for like what you do or hard part when you're hiring people is, you know, how do you blend all those things? Great talent with great culture, great fit, great, you know, all those things. That I think a lot of people discount age. There's a lot of ageism in various businesses, but I do think that someone older knows how to go with the flow more so than a younger person who has never experienced diversity and doesn't know how to cope with that or how to pivot when something goes wrong. So I'm making a, I'm making a pitch for ageism. I think a lot of times, I think if you, if you partner older seasoned employees with younger ones. I think you have just a great dynamic mentorship and a great partnership because the young people bring so much to the table, but older people do as well. And people are working more and more as they get older. And I think you just can't teach someone how to deal with adversity. You had to have gone through it yourself and really learned from it. So I think I think there's a way to meet and marry the ageism culture with younger people going into the workforce. I think there's room for everyone at the table. Yeah, I mean, even just when you're driving around and people are just doing some s- silly things that annoy you, you sometimes have to just kind of take a deep breath and go, life is going to go on. I was, you know, I'm, I'm still going to own my home when I come home tonight. My kids are still going to love me. It's good. It's going to be fine. You know, it's like, right. <laughs> it's, you know, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lose it, but no, no. I, I, I appreciate you taking time out of your busy, busy day. And, uh, I think you're a force of nature and, uh, I've always looked up to, uh, your drive, your success, your passion, and your friendship. And I hope we continue to be friends for a long time. I feel the same way about you, Mark. And it's such a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much, Sharon. 
Thanks, Mark. Take care. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed the episode today on the Hero of the Hour podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe on whichever platform you are listening to this on. If this episode made you think of someone, go ahead, take a screenshot and share the podcast episode with them. You can catch the show notes for this episode and more at www.markbmurphy.com forward slash podcast. Be sure to check out the other great books and resources on the website while you're there. Once again, it's www.markbmurphy.com forward slash podcast. All links can be found in the description below. We look forward to serving you on the next episode. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by PAS or Guardian, and opinions stated are their own. Registered Representative and Financial Advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. OSJ, 200 Broad Hollow Road, Suite 405, Melville, New York, 11747, 631-589-5400. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial Representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Northeast Private Client Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California Insurance License Number 0B36048. Arkansas Insurance License Number 741545. Expiration and submission numbers located in the show notes.